Genesis chapter 38, as we continue our study here in the book of Genesis. Uh, if you're visiting or you're new here, we would just want to say welcome. We're glad to have you here tonight. Uh, we have been studying through uh, the book of Genesis for many weeks now. As, you, as we do about a chapter every week, a couple times we've done two, but uh, so here we are some 30-something weeks into our study and uh, looking to this chapter 38 tonight. Uh, this chapter contains some intense topics on sin, uh, it's on sin and wickedness, and it's, it's in an interesting location here as we were introduced, you know, really the family of of Jacob, the family of Esau we've seen, and, uh, and, and we've been introduced to this character, Joseph, who the rest of the book of Genesis is primarily the story of Joseph, except this chapter 38 that's sandwiched in here between, of course, 37 and 39, and, and this is happening simultaneously. This is happening during the time that, that Joseph has just been sold into slavery by his brothers. Um, but this is, it's an interesting chapter. And, and many, honestly, many commentators will even shy away from it. Uh, there's a lot of studies. There's, there's pastors that would shy away from teaching through or studying through. They'll just kind of give an overview. But we're going to get into it a bit tonight. The Bible doesn't shy away from the difficult topics. Uh, and the Bible specifically doesn't shy away from the, the telling the sad truth of the human sin nature. And that's what we're going to be talking much about tonight is various sinful decisions in the life of Judah, who's the fourth son of Jacob, who's now called Israel, right? And we know that out of the line of Judah will come who? A little class participation. Jesus, you wonderful Bible scholars. Very good. Wow, you guys, you, you can do the Bible study on Genesis 38. Here we go. Um, so, but what we're going to see is, is this truth and the sad truth and sad reality a bit uh, of the sinful human nature um, and the things that God must do uh, to take really control sometimes and to fulfill his perfect plan against the plan of man, against the ways of man. And, and how many times we, we know in our own lives, we know in the world today, we'll oftentimes try to take matters into our own hands and we need God to step in and to redeem and restore. And that's what we're going to be looking at much of in, in this chapter here today. Joseph, chapter 37, Joseph was just sold into slavery. And Judah, one of his brothers, older than Joseph, one of these brothers that had sold him. First they threw him into a pit, of course. Then they sold him into slavery. Now they're holding on to this lie. They told their father that he was attacked and he's dead, right? And, uh, and so now they're holding on to this lie. He's, he's holding on to some money, right? They sold their brother, so everybody got a little share, a little something to pass around, so he's got some money in his pocket, uh, holding on to that blood money, so to speak, or holding on to that, that sin money, and, uh, and at the same time, so he's, he's dealing with the weight of his own conscience in that. Uh, he's dealing with 
his father's constant agony over the loss of Joseph, who was his beloved son, uh, whether it's, it's right or not to play favorites, Joseph was his favorite, right? And now he lost that son. Jacob had lost that son, and here's Judah dealing with that, the weight of his own conscience, the weight of his father's constant agony over this and his displeasure with even his sons that they didn't protect Joseph or help him in any way or they weren't there to, to, to save him or the, all these things going through a father's mind perhaps. And, um, and then, of course, holding on to this lie, all these brothers. So there's a lot of weight going on. Judah's dealing with a lot of weight because of sinful decisions. Now verse 1 of chapter 38, it says, It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And so Judah departed because of the difficulty of the sin that he was living in. He couldn't handle his own sin. He couldn't handle living in the dysfunction of his family at the time uh, with all of his brothers selling this lie to their father after selling their brother into slavery and, and living this life of deception. You know, it's hard to live your life full of secrets and lies. These things will catch up. These things will hurt. These things will give you personal agony. There's a battle within and the more things, the more sin that we're concealing or trying to conceal, trying to hold on to, the more agony and the more things that are boiling up inside of us. So here's Judah. What does he do? I'm going to run away. Then I don't have to confront the sin. I don't have to confront things with my father. I don't have to confront my brothers. I don't have to be reminded of that sin every single day. So he runs away. And in his running from the family, he dove further and further into sinful behavior. You see, we think sometimes when we start running from sin that we could get away from it somehow. But what happens is we run and we try to run from sin and we find ourselves in more sin. We find ourselves in further trouble. Um, and here's where it starts. He makes a friend, Hira. Hira was a pagan man, bad influence, a representation of the world. And in this running, as, as Judah is running, he runs too into the arms of the world. Um, it starts here with finding and then keeping company with the world and the ways of the world. A bad friend and a bad influence, that's who Hira was. But somebody that was a worldly confidant. And again, seeking refuge from his sin, he found refuge in a worldly confidant. And that, uh, Hira became first an acquaintance, then an associate, we'll see later on, and then ultimately an accomplice to sin. And that's not a good friend, is it? A good friend is somebody who's gonna actually call you out on sin and not let you just hide or run from it. And, and so we see that uh, Judah is finding refuge in the ways of the world, and um, we're gonna see here in the life of Judah this gradual slipping into, further and further into the ways of the world as one thing leads to another. One thing always will lead to another. We think, no, it's no big deal. 
I'm just going to try to run from this situation with my family so I'm not reminded of it. I could start fresh, and you start fresh, and it's, well, it's just one friend that's maybe a bad influence, or it's just one thing that's a bad influence, and we try to excuse sometimes worldliness. We try to excuse making decisions of the world, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to get legalistic, but maybe it's for you, maybe it's secular music. You're like, oh, but I love this secular music. I love this. Maybe it's the 80s jams or whatever and that heavy rock. And you're like, oh, I don't want to give it up. But just consider for a moment, if you would, the negative, the potential negative effect that that could have on you. And we sometimes try to excuse things. We say, no, it doesn't have a negative effect. It's okay. And maybe it's certain things that you watch. And like, no, it doesn't have a negative effect. It's okay. Listen. I'm, a, I'm an avid baseball fan. Many of you know that by now, and specifically a New York Yankees fan. And there were t- there's times that I would watch a Yankee game, and if things are not going well, I'm just angry. I'm just angry. I'm like, dude, you gotta be kidding me. There's a wrong pitch to throw in that moment. He, you know, and I get mad at everything that I could get mad at on the TV in a baseball game that has no eternal significance whatsoever. But here I am, and I'm just, and you know, I'm trying not to, but then the game's over, and the Yankees lost, and I'm talking to my wife, and then, you know, the flesh comes out. It's harmless baseball. It's, it's baseball. Who cares? Right? And so, you know, now I'm like, no, I'm not going to watch it. My wife says to me, you know, you can watch baseball if you want to. Like, we can watch the game. I'm like, no, no, no. If I watch baseball, I'm going to get in the flesh. (laughs) I'm working that out. I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling, you know. I'm working that out. But, you know, and I can watch it and I can have a Look, the Yankees this year, I don't get mad because they just win all the time. But that reality, though, is that it's, it's something so harmless that I can enjoy easily the game of baseball. But I know myself. And it doesn't mean I'll never watch it. I can never watch it. It means I, means I need to work it out, right? And it, but even something that we can excuse, we can say, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's fine. Can actually have a negative influence if it is of the world. And that negative influence on us personally can then lead to other things. The outpouring of the flesh is a bad thing. And, and when it comes to baseball, sometimes it's just a little, it's frustration or the way that I speak to my wife or kids after the Yankees lost a game. But we think sometimes things are innocent. So I just ask you for yourself. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to tell you, you know, the things that you should never listen to this type of music and you should never watch this. And you know yourself And you need to have conviction from the Holy Spirit on what is good and not good for you. Parents, help your kids. They need help. They're lacking in discernment. And your kids need help in understanding what is good and not good. You know, sometimes as parents, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's probably fine. It seems harmless or whatever. But do we actually know? Are we actually understanding what's going on and what the kids are, are seeing or hearing? And so I just challenge you, consider that. 
Judah, I'm sure, didn't think that his whole life was going to spiral into what it's about to spiral into when he just fled from a circumstance that made him feel uncomfortable and lying to his father, and then showing up and making a friend, but getting caught up in total wickedness as we're going to see further on. Judah left his family and he left a place of promise and was absorbed by the world. And God had to show up and intervene, as God will oftentimes have to do. And we're, we're eventually going to see this whole family restored in the coming chapters through Joseph. And we see, we're going to see a beautiful picture of Joseph as a type of Christ here in uh, the Old Testament. We continue, though, verse 2. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chezib when she bore him. A worldly life led to a worldly wife. A daughter of a certain Canaanite. Those words are significant as they would mean. To, basically what's being said here is that she was a pagan of pagans. Okay, She was a pagan worshiper. Her life was dedicated to everything opposite of godliness. She had no understanding of godliness and no desire for anything that was godly. Uh, and, and for that matter, really, Judah didn't at this point either, right? And so when you're, when you're not walking in godliness, then you're going to make godless decisions. And as you make godless decisions, it's going to lead to total chaos, <laughs> okay? But God has to show up sometimes. We don't have to let it get there. For Judah, it got there. We have to get smacked around a little bit sometimes, but we don't have to let it get there, do we? And so... Um, he, married, uh, he, he got married to a pagan of pagans uh, with no interest in the things of God, a member of a sin-cursed race is the reality of saying she was of a certain, a daughter of a certain Canaanite. And then the sad part is that their sons followed her lead. Now what we see is a progression here. There's three sons, the first son, Ur, the name means watcher, uh, and, named, uh, and, it, and that son was named, as it says, by Judah. Judah named his son Watcher. And there's this perspective that, that uh, Ur watched his father and saw his father, seeing a total spiritual neglect in the life of his father. And just a significant, how significant the role of the father is in the household. The kids are watching. Dads, listen, the kids are watching. And that role is so significant. Now, we don't even have to bring up how significant the role of a mother is. That goes without saying. 
right? Moms literally make the world go round, right? These kids are like, they can't, my kids come into our room if it's in the middle of the night or early in the morning and they need something. They don't even come to my side of the bed, which is amazing. It's wonderful, right? But my wife sometimes questions, why? Well, just once. I just want once. And we try to switch sides and see what would happen. They found her. <laughs> they were like confused for one second. They're like, oh, no, that's not. <laughs> that's not helpful, right? <laughs> Moms, we know you make the world go around, but dads, you have such an important and significant role as the head of the household. And, and this is such a picture of the family that the kids are watching. And dads, the kids are watching how you handle yourself. The kids are watching your godliness or godlessness. The kids are watching what you're watching on TV. The kids are watching the way you speak to your wife. The kids are watching the way you drive the car. Right? I remember, I, I, I remember when I got my permit at 16 years old, driving, and my dad is in the car, and his most famous words were, do as I say, not as I do. I'm like, I'm driving, I do something, he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, you do it all the time. He's like, don't do it. <laughs> but we do that. As parents, do as I say, not as I do. But the kids are watching I realize this in the way that my kids will communicate to one another. And I hear things that they say to each other, the older, my older son talking to his younger brother and kind of being like, kind of rough like dad sometimes. I'm a bit sarcastic if you guys didn't know that, right? So sometimes I, I'm a little too sarcastic. And then I hear that sarcasm come out between the boys and I'm like, oh no. These punks, man, I just created another one of me. This is, this is not good. But that's the reality, dads, that we have such an important role. The kids are watching, and they need godliness to be the influence. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case here with Judah and his sons. So this first son, uh, now watching his father and seeing his spiritual neglect led to him following his mother and her pagan religion. That's what's gonna happen, dads, if we don't lead. If we don't set the example, that's what's going to happen. The kids are gonna follow mom. Now, praise the Lord if they got a godly mom. But that tells you, dads, our responsibility. And in this case, it wasn't a godly mom. It wasn't a situation where they were led to godliness, but to godlessness. And so here now the second son, Onan, means strength. But the difference here, if you notice in, in these verses, it says that she named him. We're seeing a, a rise in the mother's influence because of the neglect of the father representing the strength of influence that was growing for Shua. And he would grow to be strong in wickedness. The third son, Shelah, the name means he that 
breaks, also named by his mother. Truly what this means, guys, the final straw. He that breaks, the straw that broke the camel's back. This is Judah had surrendered the headship of his home to his worldly wife. So then we continue, and we're going to see now the fruit, the fruit of spiritual neglect in the household. And again, let me speak on that, spiritual neglect in the household. These things will not work themselves out, guys. We have a responsibility as parents. You don't just need to bring your kids to church and then everything's going to be okay. And the church is responsible for raising your kids and teaching them in godliness. Or sometimes parents, well, put them into a Christian school and then they'll get taught the Bible in Christian school. Parents, we have a responsibility. More than any other bit of education, more than any other achievement in life, we have the greatest responsibility that is to teach them Jesus. I've always said, I will say it until the day I die, I'd rather my kids be godly than good. I want them to walk with Jesus. That's what matters. And if they can learn to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I can learn to properly teach them to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things shall be added. So don't let there be spiritual neglect in the home. We have a great responsibility. Verse six, now we continue then. We'll read uh, verse 6 to 10 here as it says, Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Now this is quite an interesting passage of scripture. I've, I've heard, I even listened to pastors today say, wow, this is a raunchy part of the text here that's just thrown in there. But this is what happens when there's a lifestyle of sin and there is spiritual neglect in the home. These are the sons of Judah. With all the worldly and wicked influence, Judah chose a wife for his son. Not with godliness, not with a godly influence, with just his own worldly influence, he chose a wife for his son. And Ur was so wicked that God brought immediately judgment on him. And then Onan was just as wicked as his brother. And it was so it was customary in that day, as he, as he even says, now go into your brother's wife. And, and this is not just some crazy thing that he's telling his son to do. It was customary in that day and then later actually included in the Mosaic law that if a man dies before providing a son, 
for his family, for his wife, to carry on the name and to care for the mother. Uh, it was the duty of the brothers to marry her and give her sons. It was, at, in reality here, in this situation, it was the responsibility of the house of Judah to take care of Tamar, to provide a husband for Tamar, and to provide then sons through a husband for Tamar. That was customary. That was included then in the Mosaic law. And then that child would be considered the child of the deceased, not of the, the new husband, right? It's quite a series of events here, but so now Onan knew that. He knew that if, he had, if, he, if they had a son, it wouldn't even be his. So that the brother's name, the deceased brother, would be, his name would be carried on and the widow would have support. But Onan, in his own wickedness, agreed, but not for the right purpose. He didn't follow through with the responsibility. And he agreed only to use Tamar for his own sexual satisfaction. That's the reality of, of the immorality that's going on in this family and the spiritual neglect that led to a son that decided, you know what, I don't want to father my brother's child. And even, so what if he didn't want to? He could have spoken up, he could have said something, right? But instead, he still used Tamar for his own sexual pleasure and satisfaction. Not fulfilling his responsibility, but yet did not hesitate to satisfy his flesh. The flesh, guys, it's an ugly thing. And it always wants more. It always wants satisfaction. There's such parallels here of, of the story of Esau, and we'll get a little bit further into that, where Esau, in this momentary place of wanting satisfaction, he was hungry, he said, I'm going to die, give me food, and so then he forfeit his birthright and his blessing to his brother because he wanted to satisfy his flesh in the moment. And so now here, Onan only interested in satisfying the flesh. And truly, guys, this is a selfish use of sex. A warning against selfish satisfaction of the flesh. And it's even within the proper space of marriage The, the custom was to marry his brother's wife. He does that. They go to follow through with and consummate the marriage, and yet he doesn't allow it to happen. Even within the proper space of marriage, there can still be selfish use of sex. A warning even to the married couples not making this about personal satisfaction. That's not what's pleasing to God. As I said in the beginning, there's some mature topics here. 
some intense topics of sin and wickedness going on. But it's the scripture. And when we come across these things in scripture, these are like the massive warning signs, flashing lights that we need to like, whoa, pay attention. Judah went through the things that Judah went through, and it's here for us to see two things, warning and second, the grace of God. Because out of the line of Judah comes the Messiah. Imagine that. Imagine that, guys. And that's what this chapter is all about. Redemption in the face of all of the wickedness. Redemption. And so out of this, out of this great sin, God killed him also. And we see once again throughout the book of Genesis, we have seen the work of the devil is to destroy the lineage of Christ, to deteriorate the lineage of Christ, which is the line of Judah, and to bring this wickedness into the lineage of Christ. That's the, the, the tactic of the enemy is to just let wickedness abound. And so here now is the wickedness abounding in the life of, of these sons of Judah, Ur and Onan. But God is greater. These men who had succumbed to wickedness ultimately missed out on partaking in that lineage of promise. But verse 11 then, Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in the father's house. Now there's a couple things that happen here. One, he's shaming her. He's trying to blame Tamar that she's like, you know, black widow, so to speak. Like, man, she's got the kiss of death. This lady, man, she marries my son, he dies. Marries the next son, he dies. You're not getting the third one. But he also is leading her on and saying, oh, stay, stay away until my son is grown. Now, he had no intent of giving his third son to Tamar. But he's definitely leading her on in that. And, and so now, what he's doing, though, is trying to shift the blame refuses to fulfill his responsibility in giving the third son and sends her away to her father against the custom. Now, again, this was, she was now the responsibility of the house of Judah. And he's not following through, not fulfilling that responsibility, sending her away back to her own father. He's your problem now. Or she's your problem now. And Judah, who was responsible for spiritual neglect and poorly leading his family, is trying to shift the blame of his son's death that was, a, was because of their wickedness. That's what the Bible tells us. Their wickedness brought on death. But now he tries to shift the blame onto Tamar. Parents, again. 
Let us take responsibility for what we've created. Sometimes we look at our kids and we see the the monster that we've created. We see the wickedness maybe coming out and we want to blame the world. We want to blame everybody else and say it's somebody else's fault. Our kids are really good at blaming everybody else. But as parents, we need to take responsibility. Now, as individuals, we need to take responsibility. Because like Judah, we're so quick to blame other people for our own sin. And we look at our lives and we look at the sin that we commit, the things that, where we cross the line, uh, the ways that we transgress, and then we just try to blame everybody else. We try to blame the way they talked to me or the way that this happened or we try to blame our circumstances and we we try to excuse ourselves and we find some Tamar that we could cast the blame on and say it's her fault, it's their fault, it's that situation's fault that I am the way that I am rather than taking responsibility. It's the way that I was treated by people or whatever it might be rather than taking responsibility for ourselves. Whenever there's conflict, we have an opportunity to point the finger at ourselves, but we're so quick to point the finger at everybody else. We have to start here, guys. We have to look at ourselves and stop excusing sin. Like Judah trying to blame Tamar. Verse 12 then. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Now, Sheila was grown. Years had gone by. And here's Tamar realizing that she wasn't going to have a husband or a child at this point. We see <clears throat> Judah and his friend Hira going to blow off some steam after Judah's wife had died and he goes to, this was, they would go up to Timnah, they would go up and shear sheep. It's something that they enjoyed doing. Likely Judah was a shepherd and it was something actually enjoyable to him to get his mind off of the grief and the pain, the loss of his wife. And so... As he's there, then this word gets back to Tamar that your father-in-law is going up to Timnah. And here we see again Judah taking consolation or seeking comfort or refuge in his worldliness with this worldly friend, Hira, continuing to go back to that place uh, with him. And so Tamar taking matters into her own hands here, but as Sheila has grown and she's realizing she just can't, she can't just put herself out there. There's no, uh, 
There's no Christian mingle. You know, there's no, uh, you, you, whatever these different uh, dating opportunities that are out there, that wasn't customary, she wasn't allowed to do that, and there was none of those opportunities, right? She was not an eligible bachelorette, and uh, so she was the responsibility of the house of Judah, and it was their responsibility to provide a husband, and now, Sheila is of age, is grown and, and is of age of this. And now, verse 14, so she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given to him as a wife. She, she's taking matters into her own hands now out of desperation, recognizing that, you know what? Judah's not going to fulfill this responsibility. He's not going to follow through on this. And he had, as we said, led her on in saying, go be with your father, stay in your father's house, stay away from us until Sheila is grown. And there's that little bit of glimmer of hope perhaps that she had and now realizing he's grown. Nobody's called me up. Nobody's come looking for me. Nobody's come to tell me that Sheila's grown and could be my husband now. So now she's very obviously upset about it, and rightly so, because this was the responsibility of the house of Judah. And so she's out of desperation, taking matters into her own hands. Listen, when people are desperate, we will often do crazy things, right? That's no excuse, but that's what happens, we have a saying, right? Desperate times call for desperate measures. And sometimes we use that as an excuse to, to act out in sin. But there's a reality to it. She's desperate. And, and just that heart and that place of desperation that it literally is willing to do anything to get, was, get what was rightfully hers. <clears throat> But now she creates this plan, and she's created a plan, and she's going to follow through with this plan. So she took off her widow's garments, as we read. And we go on to verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send you Send a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. And he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. This is the wickedness of the world. It just keeps spiraling. When, when we, when people, fueled by wickedness, fueled by lust, fueled by desperation, fueled by our own sinful desires, when we take matters into our own hands, this is the type of stuff that happens. The heart of man is deceitfully wicked. And we're, we're shocked. We read this, we're like, oh my, oh my. Am I reading this right? Yes. You're reading this right. Judah 
impregnated his daughter-in-law without knowing it because he thought she was a prostitute. This is a mess. This is a total mess, and it was already a total mess. Two sons have already dropped dead because of their wickedness. And, and there's more to it. It's such a heart-wrenching thing, but guys, we can't be so naive to think that this stuff is not going on in the world around us. And let me say, we can't be so naive to think that this stuff is not going on among the people of the church. Sometimes we're so shocked, but the heart is deceitfully wicked. And I charge you, sexual immorality literally destroys lives. So Tamar's scheme is to force Judah to fulfill what he was supposed to. It was likely here that Shelah was with Judah, his son, right? Perhaps even she's trying to get his attention or Judah's attention to say, hey, Shelah's old now. He's, he's grown. But nonetheless... What she knows in the midst of her scheme is how to get the attention of the men of this family. Whether it was going to be, well, whether it was her first husband who dropped dead, whether it was her second husband who dropped dead, and the sins of these men, it was, a, on, it was about sexual immorality, and now here, she knew how to get their attention. Sexual immorality was a problem for the men of this family. So she disguised herself as what we, as you would look at this, she was a temple prostitute. This wasn't an uncommon thing. It wasn't something that, you know, just randomly, she's a woman on the side of the road as Judah is walking, and he's like, hey, I think she's pretty, and he goes and comes on to her. That's not the situation. She was disguised as a harlot, as it says, a temple prostitute. And it tells you a bit of <clears throat> the type of guy that Judah likely was, that he would approach a temple prostitute. But she was disguised and was noticed by Judah and propositioned by Judah. These are the things uh, it started, it all just started with a compromise and this, this turmoil within for Judah that he couldn't keep this secret from his father and he couldn't stay around anymore dealing with holding on to this sin so he thought he could run away and hide from that sin. It's the same thing that's been going on since the beginning of the book of Genesis, since the beginning of time. When sin entered the world, man has been trying to hide from God and hide from the sin. But it always comes out. 
And so Judah, he just tries to run. And, and that's where it started. And then he just has a friend, that's Hira. And it, it's, it's innocent, it's no big deal, but it's a worldly influence. And then out of this, it just keeps spiraling, keeps spiraling, keeps spiraling. His sons are dropping dead. There's all sorts of sexual immorality in his family. He's cast out uh, uh, Tamar, who was his responsibility. And now he's fallen into his own sexual immorality, likely living a life of sexual immorality. And in the midst, he's so willing to forfeit everything because he is fueled by his lust of the flesh. Just like his son, fueled by the lust of the flesh, drop dead. And so she then demanded security in lieu of payment at the time. This is, hey, you don't have money? Okay, give me security so I know, and then you'll send me the money. And once I get the money, you'll get your stuff back. This is like, you know, you would like leave your driver's license and credit card like, oh, I gotta get cash. I'm gonna leave the driver's license credit card. I'll be right back. And you bring back the cash. That's the reality here. His signet ring. This, is, this was his identity. This is the person. This is who he was. But what took place here, he was so driven by lust he gives them willingly, willing to forfeit everything. The signet ring would be the representation of who he is, the person. The cord or the bracelet, as it speaks of, would be a representation of his possessions. And the staff would have marked him as a shepherd, representing his position. So here, Judah, caught up in a moment of lust, was willing to fulfill his person, his possession, and his position. Just willing to forfeit it all. Not so different from his uncle Esau, who forfeit his birthright and his blessing for momentary satisfaction. And so Judah follows through on this. He didn't follow through on his responsibility, but he follows through on the flesh. And he acted out, telling us what type of guy he was, the company that he had kept, <clears throat> the practices of his lifestyle. But then verse 19, so she arose and went away and lay aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. Going back. She's just going back to what she, the way things were. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite. So now he's become the accomplice, right? Helping him to cover up his sin, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he did not find her. Uh-oh. Then he asked the men of the place, saying, where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, there was no harlot in, that, in this space. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said, there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, let her take them for herself. 
lest we be ashamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. So he's just like, you know what? Just leave it out there. He's trying to fulfill the debt, so to speak. But what he's actually doing is trying to cover up his sin. He's like, I need to get this settled. We need to get this settled. And he kind of toils through that, trying to get things settled. Not out of conviction, mind you, but looking out for his reputation. I need to get my signet ring back. I need to get my bracelet back. I need to get my staff back. Because people are going to wonder, where did it go? And people are, what, what happens if they turn up? And it's just out there somewhere. So he's quickly trying to make things happen, but then over time, after he's tried to pay her to get his stuff back over time, he's just, just, you know what, just leave it out there. And over time, he's basically just moved on. He tried and ultimately just moved on, no doubt just becoming more immune to the sin. Over time, forgetting even about the signet ring that's out there and probably even assuming, ah, you know what, it's not gonna turn up anywhere now. She's moved on probably to another city, another town. But then verse 24, and it came to pass about three months after that, Judah was told saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila, my son, and he never knew her again. He tried to cover up his sin, but it will be found out. It will be revealed. And here when it's brought up that your daughter-in-law has played the part, played the role of a harlot and is pregnant out of harlotry and he, he loses it. What? Are you kidding me? He's angry. He's, he's ready to burn her at the stake. He wants her to be judged for her sexual immorality and for bringing shame on his family. So now he wouldn't take responsibility for her for all this time. For all these years, he would not take responsibility for her, fulfilling the responsibility that he needed to And yet now, he said, you're bringing shame. She brought shame upon our family, so she now has to be burned. Burn her at the stake. Not recognizing the shame that he already brought by not fulfilling his responsibility to her, as well as not recognizing his own sexual immorality. The same sin that plagued him the same sin that plagued his own family. He wouldn't admit it. He didn't see it for what it was in his own life. And we see this so often. People that have such strong judgment to cast toward others are actually struggling in their own sin. 
And so what happens here? As, I mean, you could picture this here. She's being dragged out on the streets. The idea that they're ready to burn her at the stake, and she's like, hold it. I've got some evidence here. I've got something to say. And she reveals the truth with the evidence of Judah's things, with the signet and the cord and the staff. And he recognizes, he acknowledges. He acknowledges these items and he acknowledges a fault, but he does not confess his sin. He does not recognize his sin for what it is. Certainly there's no more talk of burning at the stake because now his sin has been found out. And as his sin has been found out, Tamar had taken what should have been hers long ago. And there's a recognition of that. As Judah says it, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila, my son. That statement is an admission of fault, but not with confession of sin. She's been more righteous than I because I didn't give her my son, Sheila. And there is this recognition, but at the same time, he's sidestepping the sin. He's sidestepping the sexual immorality that had literally controlled his entire life and his entire family has ruined their lives. And he still would not call it what it is. Both of these things were significant, but he just tries to bring to light the one. Well, yeah, you know, I didn't fulfill that responsibility. So let's just leave her alone. It's okay. And though Judah may have seemed here, look, we don't, we don't see judgment cast, Right? I think there's plenty of judgment that's being cast at this point. He seems at this point to be out of trouble, but God does not allow things to go unseen or unpunished. Because here's Genesis chapter 38. And we wonder why is this here sandwiched in the midst of all of this? Because we're going to see redemption take place in this lineage. Through, this, through the line of Judah, we're going to see redemption take place. The Savior, the Messiah. And over this family, we're going to see restoration take place through Joseph, this type of Christ here in the Old Testament. Judah's wickedness written here in God's word for all to see. But God's redemption over this lineage would fulfill his perfect plan. Then we read verse 27 through the end here. Now it came to pass at, that to- at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore his name was called Perez. 
Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, Judah is not mentioned here in these final verses. Likely, Judah washed his hands of Tamar and of his sons. These sons are an incredible representation of the grace of God. And yet Judah, in his sin, his wickedness, actually forsook the grace of God. He was ignorant of what God could do. He was ignorant of God's grace. Judah was so backslidden, he could not see God's grace. He couldn't see what God could do. A quote by John Phillips, he says this, that God should pick up the seed of a pagan woman, the seed of an act of shame, and make the resulting son to be a direct lineal ancestor of the Christ himself was a knowledge too high for Judah in his sin. He couldn't see what God could do because he would not get over his sin. God had taken away two of Judah's sons. Now in grace, he gave him two more. But Judah missed out on the grace of God. He forsook it. He washed his hands of it. And these sons, you have Zerah, the redeemed child, with the scarlet thread tied around him. And the scarlet thread later in the Bible would represent salvation for Rahab, who used a scarlet cord so that her household would escape God's judgment in Jericho. We see Perez, the royal child, who burst out this picture that one put out its hand, they assumed this one's gonna be first. Tie the cord. And then, oh no, wait, hold on, here comes the other one. Like, no, wait, hold, that's not the way it's supposed to go is basically what the midwife is saying. But this royal child and Perez is listed in the genealogy of Christ in the book of Matthew. This chapter reminds us that, first of all, corruption begets more corruption until God shows up. If we're gonna keep making sinful decisions and allowing life to spiral out of hand because we just keep making sinful decisions, God might have to show up and there's gonna be a lot of pain and suffering for God to fix things in our lives, in our mess. We're good at creating messes. And neither Judah or Tamar were examples of godliness, but God's grace redeems even the most wicked situation. It redeems even the most wicked lineage. A representation, guys, that truly there is nothing impossible for God. His grace can redeem and restore and overcome 
no matter how low or how bad the circumstances are. And this is low. Chapter 38 of Genesis is one of those, like I said, there are pastors and there are commentators that literally just brush over it or skip over it. Because it's just, man, there's some wicked stuff there. This is the PG-13 passage of Scripture. We need to pass by. It's there for a purpose. And we see here the total wickedness of man left to their own desires and, and flesh. And this is the result. Total immorality and corruption. The lowest of low. But God, God who is rich in grace and mercy, he is able to restore. And maybe in your life, in your circumstances, there's been the lowest of low. And maybe you've actually just been trying to hide or cover up or run away from the sin and you're far removed from it. You're far enough removed from it. You're, you're, hey, there's years have gone by. Maybe it will just, we'll all be able to forget about it. Nobody will ask me. That signet ring won't show up. Or, or you know, even fast forward, guys, to what's going to happen. Joseph is still alive. And jo- Joseph's going to show up in Egypt. And they're there asking him, help us. We're, we're going to die. We have no food. And now he's got their life literally in his hands. This is going to happen later in the book of Genesis. Things come back around, but we think, oh, I get far enough removed and far enough to, to just cover that over. And if I, just, if I do better now, then everything will be kind of settled. But we're not going to do better. We need the Spirit of God. We need a, a confession of sin to call things what they are, and to walk forward in newness of life under the blood of Jesus Christ. And so maybe you're in that place and you have sin issues. And you think, you know what, it is the lowest of low and I can't actually face it. And you think you want to just cover it, you just want to run from it. Stop running. Stop hiding confront it, deal with it. And remember that God is rich in grace and mercy. And if you want anything to change, if you want your situation to change, you want to stop doing the things that you're doing, you need to walk in the newness of life under the grace of God and make it right. So let's pray. I invite Mike to come on up and as we close. Mike's going to just lead us in a song as we close and in this, maybe a quiet song. Not to throw a wrench in things for you, but <laughs> just in this moment of, of stillness before the Lord, in your seat right where you are, if you need to get on your knees before the Lord, Get right.